This is Ari Koretsky and welcome to Jews You Should Know, introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so, but each is a Jew you should know. We are back with our next episode in the Live Israel Podcast Tour, and this is posting actually as I am just returning from another wonderful trip to Israel, this time for mayor purposes, not a podcasting trip. But nonetheless, as you heard last week, I got to reunite with Uri Alone of the Salad Trail, and this week I'm releasing Moise Navon. Moise is a fascinating entrepreneur, engineer. He is one of the early builders of the Mobileye company, which was subsequently bought by Intel last year for $15.3 billion, the largest exit of any Israeli startup. Moise is also a prolific Torah teacher and public speaker and has a wonderfully inspiring story of his personal journey as well as his professional odyssey and that of Mobileye, the company that he helped propel to such legendary heights. I got to meet with Moise at the Mobileye headquarters in Har Chutzvim, which is sort of the tech center, at least of the past generation, in Jerusalem, and it hosts many of the brand name tech companies that are based in Jerusalem. Mobileye is a beautiful facility there, and I got to tour that office complex and see their many awards and many testaments to their exceptional development on the Israeli tech scene. And now, we head back to Jerusalem for my conversation with Mobileye engineer, Moise Navon. We are here at the Intel Mobileye headquarters in Har HaKotzfim, the tech hub of Jerusalem with Moise Navon and uh, one of the principals of Mobileye and one of its major uh, engineers, a longtime engineer and uh, speaker all over to groups all over the world. How are you, Maurice? I'm good. Thank you for coming and inviting me. Thank you for having me. This is actually my first time in Harachot Zvim. Mm. Um, I've heard a lot about it, and this is kind of like the original tech sector of Jerusalem. Correct. And uh, people don't necessarily identify Jerusalem with tech, but uh, surprisingly, I'm learning on this trip that there's quite a bit of tech innovation uh, in Jerusalem here at Harachot Zvim, and also accelerators that are now popping up all over town and, and things like that. So correct, it's cool correct. to be here. Yeah. Um, tell us a little bit about where you're from. I think the, the audience will notice a non-native uh, Israeli accent. Correct. So tell us about your upbringing and where you're from. Okay, um, I basically grew up in Los Angeles. I grew up a uh, secular Jew. Grew up skateboarding and surfing in the late 70s and 80s. Um, and, you know, I had like the nice life, the good life, but I always had a question, you know, when I was about seven or eight, I found out that people die. So I said, like, you know, so what's the point, right? I mean, I have a nice life, but still, you know, what's the point? It's a very philosophical question for a seven-year-old. Yes, yeah, and then, and what really bothered me at that time was that then I thought about it some more, and, like, I pictured my life as, like, this streak of light on the globe of the Earth in this black space. And my life was basically, you know, this light. You know, I translated dimensions to time, time to dimensions, whatever. But basically what I realized that was I was going to go out. When I'm done, I'm, I'm in black. And then I realized that, no, you're not even in black. When you die, 
you are so gone that you don't even know you ever existed. Right. So then I said, so what's the point? Pretty intense. Now, yeah. yeah. So when I was seven or eight and basically no one gave me an answer, I went surfing. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's got epicureanism, yeah. you know? Yeah. Yeah. So like, we're going to be married, right. surf, tomorrow right. she'll die. Yeah. So basically, you know, I carried this sort of with me. I imagine that most people at some point in their life asked the question. And it wasn't until I was at UCLA learning computer engineering that I finally got an answer. In my second year of um, computer engineering, so a friend of the family gave me a job at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Wow. And- uh, Where was that located? It's la located in Pasadena. It's a division of NASA in Pasadena. It's connected also with Caltech. And so he gave me this job, which is like an amazing opportunity. And so I come to my first day of work, you know, I'm all ears. Let's, let's, let, you know, tell me what you need to do. Tell me what I want, what I'm supposed to learn. He's teaching me all this engineering. And you know, the projects and what's going on, gives me a tour of the place and then we go to lunch. And uh, so he says, so um, order whatever you want. So I said, okay, I smell the grill, so it's really good, I'll have a cheeseburger. So he's a religious Jew, he looks at me and he makes like a face and I said, cheeseburgers aren't good here? I like didn't know. So he says, so he doesn't say anything, he just makes more faces. I said, listen, I don't read faces, so like, if you don't tell me it's not good, I'll get what I like, you know? And we had a cheeseburger, I think that was the last cheeseburger I ever ate. Wow. Uh, <laughs> So, so we, we, we ate lunch, and then after lunch, so we started having, you know, a discussion about Jewish philosophy, and those discussions basically were the whole time that I worked there for about a year and a half, we had two to three hour lunches talking about Jewish philosophy. Among the things, you know, he told me basically, you know, we believe that there's a creator. We believe that you have a soul. We believe that there's a purpose. The purpose is to fix yourself, fix the world. So those ideas began to resonate with me. Right. And so I stopped eating cheeseburgers. It wasn't easy. Spit out a lot of, a lot of ice creams until you figure out how to count to six. Um, well, there's, I mean, there's a lot of, um, you know, that's a long distance between sort of this abstract philosophical notion that correct. there's a God or creator and to stop eating cheeseburgers. So it sounds like you must have had some kind of deeper or more more connected uh, back yeah, more, yeah, more yeah, yeah, sure, sure. okay so look my my parents are from istanbul turkey my family is from gerush farad you know my family basically my parents yeah. Are, yeah my parents are the first generation to not speak ladino only my grandparents speak only ladino my parents f learned turkish and i'm like the first generation who barely knows ladino so I know one song in Ladino. <laughs> you speak Ladino? No, no. Okay. So I, know, I know Spanish from L.A., you know. There you go. But uh, anyway, no, I grew up with a traditional background. Mm -hmm. I had, you know, we went to Sunday school until my bar mitzvah, and then that was like my graduation. I'm done with Judaism. But right, I sure. knew, and we are connected, and we are all proud Jews. We didn't know what we are proud about, but, you know. So yeah. it was a matter of let... A lot of synchronicity, the philosophy and the and the background and the it all came together basically. And Just two conversations with this guy. Yeah. Did you have experiences? Did you go to for Shabbat to his house? Um, yeah, I used to. I mean, slowly over that time, I started going to his house for Shabbat, but like. We would, you know, my girlfriend and I would drive it, who became sure. my wife. We just, we would drive like in the afternoon and, and go have dessert with them or something, sure. right? And then I started trying not to drive, so I would like jog there for three miles from my house to his house. While my wife would drive, and, or my girlfriend at the time would drive and, 
meet me there. Where were you living? Um, we, were, uh, we were living in Westwood. In Westwood, is, yeah. by the campus. Yeah, near near UCLA. I mean, yeah. that's where I grew up, basically. Oh wow, okay. Yeah, there's a wonderful little shul there, the Westwood Kahilo. For sure, yeah. Uh, I, so I became associated with the Westwood Kahilo yeah. after we became. Rabbi Brander was there. Correct. And then, uh, correct. Correct. Avi Stewart. Rabbi Stewart is, I believe, correct. Right now, yeah. Old yeah. friend of mine. Right. Right. So, right. Uh, so I know all of them, and uh, but I was there like long before them. Right. With, uh, Rabbi Zeph was there at the time when okay. I was there. But um, this guy, he was basically in through Chabad, and so I basically kind of got in through Chabad, and then found more of my Sephardic roots, and then translated cool. into that. But I still hold the Rebbe in great in great honor, though I don't think that he's the Messiah. Okay, well that makes and two of us. Yeah, so <laughs> on both on both counts, right, right. <laughs> both in terms of the esteem and in terms yeah. of the uh, messianic piece. But um, so that you were just doing a lot of learning and a lot of experiencing. Right. It sounds like. Um, there was a strong intellectual component for you? For sure. I went and like, you know, I went and bought books and I mean, all I wanted to do was try to buy books and buy time to read them and get through things. And I mean, some of the initial books that I read were, you know, I, I would say one of the most influential ones was uh, Derech Hashem of uh, Ramchal. And um, I guess you read that in English. I'm yeah, guessing. yeah, I read. Yeah, for sure. I read in English. It took me, I mean, and funny story about my Hebrew. I mean, I basically learned a little bit of Hebrew here and there just through reading the books. I read like, you know, Midrash says, I read, you know, Rashi, and there's like little, in, you know, insertions of Hebrew here and there. So I was getting like some Torah Hebrew into me. And then we decided, you know, I got married to my wife. We decided we need to come to Israel. Um, we came here and we learned for a year after we were married. We learned in various yeshivot of like Chosrim B'Tshuvah. Sure. And then we went back to L.A. And, um, but we said, you know, we really we want to move back, you know, and we want to we try to get to Israel. Um, that's really the stage of Jewish history that, you know, you read the Torah that's about the Jewish people coming to the land of Israel, yeah. right? And so we, we said we need to try to get there. So I sent out my resume to all these, like, tech companies of America based in Israel, and I was lucky to get a no thank you note. Interesting. I'm surprised. Well, we're talking about we're talking about uh, 1991. Okay. Okay. And there wasn't that much development here. And anyway, right. you, you got to understand. I mean, if if you're gonna get a job, you got to be in the country. I mean, just to say like, oh, I sent them a, C, a resume from LA. Eh, you know, come here and we'll see, right? Right. So my wife said, okay, you know, let's just go there. And I said, no. I'm not going anywhere without a job. I need to be able to support myself. Does she have a job? Did she uh, work? No, no. So she, I mean, she was in, in real estate in L.A., but it wasn't going to necessarily transfer. Yeah. yeah. So we, she said, okay, so maybe you'll take a pilot trip. In the meantime, I mean, it was working with a high-tech company in El Segundo, which is like near the, the airport. It's also a high-tech area of L.A. And uh, I was working with a couple of Israelis who were there on Shabbaton. Mm -hmm. And so one of them put on my desk one day a, a fax from IBM Israel. We're coming to LA to interview for these positions. I said, wow, I could do like at least four of these things. I said, why did you give me this? He said, stum. Wow. I thought you might be interested. Like uh, an angel. <laughs> yeah. So I said, yeah, I'm interested. So I faxed my resume to IBM. They fixed an interview with me. I, I met the, the CEO of Israel, IBM Israel, which at the time was one of three R&D facilities in the world that IBM had. And he was the, he's like one of the fathers of Israeli high tech. In the 70s, he brought um, IBM here. His name is Yosef Raviv. He founded basically IBM as a few guys in an office in the Technion and slowly branched it out. So I met with him in this hotel in LA. He said, okay, you're a nice guy. Seems you have reasonable background, but I don't give tech interviews. You need to interview with the head of our, you know, chip department. Chief scientific officer. Right. Yeah. Exactly. So he said, listen, he's going to be in the airport in San Francisco next week. Can you make it there? I said, 
Cheaper than flying to Israel. Did you fly up to the airport? <laughs> right. So it sounds very good. I met him in the VIP lounge. Ah, really cool. Now we're really moving up, but it was not cool at all. It's Monday night football. People are drinking and oh. talking. And this guy, he's not only the head of the chip development group at IBM, he's also the head of the chip design for the faculty at the Technion. And he's asking me finals questions. And so now I'm like, yeah, <laughs> very difficult, you, yeah. very difficult. And so basically, I mean, I feel that I failed. He said, okay, thank you very much, nice interview, fold up my stuff and I leave. I'm walking, I get to the door of the VIP lounge and I said, you can't let this happen. This is your opportunity to get to Israel. Do not let it fall. So I turned around, I went back to the guy, still sitting on the couch, and I said, listen, you know what I don't know, but you don't know what I do know. Mm. I've been in this industry working for at least 10 years. Okay, I worked at you know, NASA, I worked for a company that was basically, we made the, the missile-to-missile simulators, like missiles that shoot. Yeah, the missiles that, the interbalistic missiles that shoot out, the missiles that we're afraid Russia's gonna shoot at us. Yeah. So I designed the simulator for that. You know, do you ever think about how you can test a missile without actually shooting it two missiles in the air? So you gotta do a lot of work before you start shooting missiles around. So anyway, so we developed this whole system, installed it in the largest Air Force base in America called Eglin Air Force Base. It was in Florida for like three months in the Bible Belt. It was also another experience, but whatever. Anyway, so I explained to this guy all this stuff, and he said, okay, thank you very much, and I left. <laughs> <laughs> I was waiting for some <laughs> No, 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 no. So, but, but basically, we, uh, a week later, I got a call from Yosef Raviv, and he said, we want to give you a job. Amazing. So I, I went to my wife, I said, listen, I have good news and bad news. The good news is we got the job. The bad news is they want to pay us half of what we're making here. We're not exactly rich in LA. How are we going to make it there? But my wife, you know, she's a dyed-in-the-wool Zionist, even though she has the same secular Jewish background as me. Um, but she said, they're making it, we'll make it. So we came, not so simple. You know, you Google tips on like how to save money, you know, stop drinking coffee out. We're way past that. You know, I was, from the time I was 16 years old, I had my own car. Now, no car, I'm hitchhiking to work, right? But Israel's a small country, and who picks me up on my first day to work but Yosef Raviv pulls up, you know, and no, uh, <laughs> That's uh, uh, serendipitous. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, it wasn't easy, but it was definitely worthwhile. People often t asked us, you know, so how do you like Israel? How's it going? I said, listen, we came here to fulfill purpose. We came here to fulfill the dream of the Jewish people. So it's going great, <laughs> you know? Where did you move to? Um, so we moved to Haifa. That was where the IBM R&D facility yeah, was, okay? Technion, and yeah. it was in the Technion. At the time, we were, I was in the Technion, and then we moved actually to this whole tech facility, which is down by the beach. It's called Matam, and the Intel's there, and, and Zoran, and all kinds of chip developers, and Microsoft, everybody's there now. But when we moved, so we were like one of the two big new buildings. Um, but it was very difficult for us. I, I mean, Haifa was like culturally impossible. And uh, I mean, the only good thing was that you meet lots of people that you can't communicate with other than in Hebrew. And so like, I'm speaking in with these people. I remember once I was in Shul and this guy asked me, he says, so um, where do you work? You know, Eifat Oved. I'm like, Oved, Oved, Ken, okay, yeah, um, IBM. And he says, oh, yesh lecha nisayon. I'm like, nisayon, nisayon. Avram Avino hai nisayon. God tested Abraham, I don't have Nisayon. I said, no, I don't have any Nisayon, right? 
which obviously, you know, Nisayon is the work experience. I have plenty of work experience, but not the kind of Nisayon. So my Hebrew was very biblical at the time. <laughs> um, but because we were in, in Haifa for a good year and a half, I mean, I was able to speak with people in Hebrew, and that's really how my Hebrew started. Um, but I, we couldn't take it culturally. It was very difficult at that time. Now I think a lot has changed. But at that time, um, you know, we were in like, quote unquote, one of the religious neighborhoods in Haifa where basically people were working on their cars and doing barbecues on Shabbat. And there was like, you know, one religious family per building. And it wasn't exactly, you know, the, the picturesque uh, religious Israel that we had thought of. And um, basically I found a friend of mine was working in Jerusalem here in this neighborhood of Har Chotzvim way before it was the high-tech center that you see. There was a small startup, but it got me out of IBM, brought me to Jerusalem and started working for them. Um, it went under in like three months. Um, but at least I was in Jerusalem. And so then I started um, looking for a job, found something in Herzliya Pituach. So Herzliya Pituach is one of the main um, high-tech centers in Israel. And there's a lot of startups there. And so I went to work for this company called OptiBase. They were making MPEG devices. We're talking about 1995. Um, we were making you know, video on demand for the airplanes. Like if you flew here and you watched whatever movie you wanted, that's based on our original system. We made MPEG when nobody knew what the word MPEG was. And um, so we built these systems. Basically, there was enough players for like um, business class or first class. Um, but it was that was basically the beginning of, of video on demand for airlines and all kinds of other things. Um, so I was driving Jerusalem Herzliya Pituach. That's quite which a is, slap, is, yeah. yeah, it's a serious drive, and it basically was killing me. And even though it was a good job, I said I got to get out of here. I can't take it. So I um, found a job here again in Har Chotzvim at a company called NDS which was later bought out by Cisco. We do um, encryption decryption for video systems, pay-per-view TV or pay TV, things like that. Before I left OptiBase, a friend of mine, so he said, listen, um, did you take your options? You know, in high tech, basically you get a salary and you get right. some options and you hope that they'll make you some money. Right, that's where the real money is. Right, yeah. exactly. So I didn't really know that at that time. And I said, I, and so I said, I said options, no, I don't have enough money to buy my options. I, I gotta go, I gotta get out of here. I can't take this drive. He goes, listen, we're engineers, never going to make it financially on our salary. It's the options. You don't leave options on the table. I said, okay, okay, fine. I'll, I'll try to remember that. And I left, right? So what I remembered, and now I was worked for NDS for five years, and now it was the year 2000, the dot-com dot era. bubble. Everybody yeah. here in this, everybody in this Har Chotzvim area was another little startup. And so I said, this is it. I'm going to take my friend's advice. I'm going to go get some options. I'm going to go work for a startup. So I went and found this company. They were making fiber to the home, right? We're making like a network chip. Fiber to the home is the ultimate data transmission. You get internet, telephone, TV, Fios, yeah. at the speed of light, right? Well, that was in the year 2000. There was no fiber to the home. But these people, they said, look, we have a great idea. The internet's exploding. Everybody's going to want fast data. We're going to build out these systems. The only thing is, I mean, we don't have a lot of capital. We have enough to take us through for a year. But in a year, we're going to go to the NASDAQ and we'll make money, right? Everybody who goes to the NASDAQ makes money and we'll get the next round of funding. Well, the next year there was no NASDAQ, right? right? And so the company went under along with all of the companies in this area. And so now that I would say is the bottom, bottom of my career. I'm now on the street, no job, no hope of a job. All my friends are on the street. What are we gonna do? So at this point, I implement one of those philosophical ideas that I learned along the way from Rebbe Akiva. You have to say Gamzula Tova. 
Gamzu Latova. It's a it's a mantra. It's a it's a way of looking at the world. All for the all for the good. All for the best. You you have no idea, and you just have to realize that you are not everything, and that there are things that are going on in the world that you don't know, and so you're not a prophet. And you just know that there's something bigger than you. And so you say, Gamzu Latova, and that's what I did. You don't get stuck and say, oh my God, no job, no people, no nothing. No. I started sending my resume out, started going to interviews. I got a couple offers from companies that, you know, were internet companies. I said, I've been burned by the internet, <laughs> not going there again. That thing's not going anywhere. Right, right. <laughs> and then I said, but I still want a startup. I got, I want options. I still want to play the game. So I kept looking. A friend of mine um, started networking with people. A friend said, oh, you used to work with a guy at NDS. He's working for a startup in the neighborhood of Ramot, which is just outside of Jerusalem. He's working in some house. Uh, I said, startup's good. What, what are they doing, internet? And he said, no, no, something in automotive. I said, oh, cars. People need cars. I'll go work for them. That little car company was um, bought out 16 years later by Intel for $15.3 billion. And so, I hope you had options. So the story, <laughs> so the story with Mobileye basically um, is that Mobileye was founded a little bit over a year before I got there by a, by a professor named Amnon Shashua. So Amnon Shashua is the head of computer vision at Hebrew University. Okay, and he's a professor at the time in 1999. He does what professors do: research, research yeah. papers, lectures. Mm -hmm. He's in the Far East lecturing about his latest research. And he says, among the things that he's teaching them, he says, you know, we can detect objects with a single camera. So somebody in the crowd raises their hand and said, excuse me, excuse me, uh, do you mean that like you can detect 3D objects in 3D space with a single camera? And he said, yeah, yeah, and he moved on with his lecture. After the lecture, he comes off the stage, he's surrounded by a team of engineers from Toyota. And they said, are you kidding? We've been working on this problem for years. We work under the paradigm, two eyes, two cameras. You can't detect depth without two eyes, okay? Because of the triangulation? Exactly. You cannot, you have to have two eyes in order to be able to detect depth. So what are you talking about? So he said, look, you know, we can see things with one eye. Only for really close objects, you have to have two cameras, two eyes. For objects that are at any reasonable distance, your brain interpolates. It knows what's going on around you. It knows, it knows what a person looks like. It knows what a chair looks like. It knows what a room looks like. It starts making guesses. It starts classifying images. It starts basically doing all kinds of interpolations. That's what your brain does. He said, we can do it in the computer. So he said, we don't believe you, but here's $100,000, prove it. So he came back to Jerusalem, got a couple students, got a couple engineers, threw a bunch of computers in the back of a van, hooked At it this up. point, this was a hypothesis of his? Yes. He hadn't actually no, nobody's done it. proven it. Nobody, nobody, nobody even dared to say it. He was it. just saying it as like, yeah. like a matter of fact. Our research, our research shows but that we can do But he hadn't substantiated That's correct. Okay. And so he basically hooks this up to a big video camera in a van with a whole stack load of computers, and they prove it. You can detect 3D objects in 3D space with a single camera. The only problem was that he proved it more or less what I would call academically. The system worked at like four frames a second. That means that you're analyzing four pictures, it takes you a second to analyze four pictures. What that means is that if you're in a car and let's say the, the system says brakes, you just ran over 10 people. Okay, so it's not applicable, it's not implementable. You need to make this thing fast, let alone small. So that's when he hired my friend and he hired myself and another two engineers. And we took all the algorithms, and we took all the software, and we took all the hardware, and we put it in this chip that works at the speed of your eye, 30 frames a second. Looks like the size of an SD card, the, the chip right. that you're holding up, yeah. Right, so basically, 
we were able to take this idea and make it into something that you can now use. But the question is, what do you use it for? Right. What's the application? In the year 2001, what are you going to do with a single camera that can identify objects that you want to put in a car? So when I got hired by Mobile, I sat with the, the then CEO founder, his name is Ziva Viram, and he said, listen, you know, um, we're making ACC, Adaptive Cruise Control. Today, Adaptive Cruise Control is very expensive. It's in high-end cars like Jaguar, which we had one that we mimicked. It's based on radar. Radar is very accurate at telling you distance of objects, but it's very expensive. Costs a few thousand dollars. We're going to make this chip connected to a cheap camera, and we're going to make a final ACC for the masses, 100 bucks. Every car will have adaptive cruise control. Which means what? Which means con cruise control today, you, you say you're driving on a highway and you want to go, I don't know, 100 kilometers an hour, I don't know, 60 miles, miles an hour, <laughs> 60 miles an hour, whatever it is, right? So you want to go, you want to go 100, you push the button, you go 100, now there's a traffic in front of you, it's going 80, you have to put your brakes on, you have to slow down. Right. The traffic moves away, you have to push the button again. Adaptive cruise control says, we see the traffic, we slow you down. We see, exactly, yeah. we see that the traffic moved away, we put you back to what you wanted. Basically what I would call a luxury toy. That's what we were doing, okay? And when I sat with the, the CEO, so you know, he cut my salary, he gave me my options, and he said, don't worry, we'll have an exit in two years, two years. Either he was naive, or I was naive, or both of us were, but it takes a year to design the logic of this chip. It takes another year to translate that into silicon, into gates and wires and transistors. It takes another year to test it, another year to put it in a car, another year to test it in the car. You're talking five to six years to get a device like this into a production vehicle. So now we're waiting. Three years go by, four years, we're running out of money. CEO comes to Who the company. Who was funding you at the time? We had the, basically was the angels. The one, the angels, yeah. I mean, the Zivaviram is really, at that time, you're talking about 1999, 2000, you're talking about crowdfunding that was never even heard of. He decided, I'm going to go to crowdfunding. I don't want to go to VCs. They're going to take too much of the company. He right. basically sort of invented crowdfunding. And uh, that's, how the, that's how the company was funded. But now we're running out of money. So he comes to the people and he says, listen, we need a way to make money today. We have a chip, we need to sell it today. We can't wait for it to be in production vehicles. That's the ultimate goal, that's where our revenues are, but today we need to make money. So all kinds of ideas came out in the end. We came up with this idea called the aftermarket product. Basically, you can take any car, you put a camera looking at the front windshield, it's connected to a display, it doesn't get into the controlling right. the car, and it beeps you if you're gonna crash, it beeps you if you leave your lane without signaling. Basically, there's a warning system. And so we didn't really put any resources into it. We don't have money for commercial marketing and sales and all this. We went to some distributors and said, see if you can get this out there, okay? I remember the day that it was a company dinner. Every year when there's money, at least we have a company <laughs> dinner. CEO gets up, he says his usual CEO speech. CEO speech goes something like this. We're doing well, work harder, we'll do better. Right? <laughs> I've been in this industry I'm for 35 <laughs> years. It usually takes CEOs about 20 to 30 minutes to say that, but that's basically it, okay? So now, this year, he doesn't have his CEO face on, he doesn't have his CEO speech on. He gets up and he looks out at the crowd and he's very serious. He says, you know what, guys? We're saving lives. So everybody looks around, what are you talking about? We're making a luxury toy for the masses. What saving lives are you talking about, right? 
Turns out that this aftermarket warning system started getting put in lots of cars and all kinds of companies started doing analysis on it. Insurance companies want to see if it's helping mitigate accidents. Um, consumer product companies, like here there's a company called Oriaro, uh, Green Light, where they're trying to uh, reduce traffic accidents. They started doing analysis on our cars versus cars that don't have it, and they started seeing that we are literally saving lives, that we are stopping accidents, and even if there is one, we've mitigated it because we've warned people and now they don't get into as bad an accident. And so we are saving lives. And so now all of a sudden the company did what they call a pivot, okay, and they changed directions. We're no longer a luxury toy company, we're a safety company. We changed the motto. It's now our vision, your safety. Mm. And now we said, listen, we're selling this thing as an aftermarket product, but we can do this in our chip. We can take control of the car. We don't need to beat people if we, they should put on their brakes. We'll put on the brakes for them. We know you're going to crash and we'll call it AEB, Automatic Emergency Braking. And we'll sell it to car manufacturers. And we know that you're leaving your lane without signaling. We'll keep the lane, we'll keep you in your lane. We'll call it LKA, Lane Keep Assist. And we'll sell it to the car companies. And all of a sudden there's a whole new area of car safety that's called ATIS, Advanced Driving Assistance Systems. And now governments are giving points for safe cars if they have any of these features. And insurance companies are giving reductions mm -hmm. if they have any of these features. And there's only one company in the entire world that has all ATIS features in one chip. And that's Mobileye. Today we have 70% of the entire ATIS market. We're in close to like 25 million cars around the world. And that's because we decided to make this pivot because we needed some money. Yeah. Okay? Now, the next pivot came when a couple of engineers, they said, you know, we're controlling the car, we're controlling the steering, controlling the gas, controlling the brakes. If we're controlling the car, let's make an autonomous vehicle. So they went to management and the management said, listen, it's a cute idea, but we don't have any customers for autonomous vehicles. But you know what? It's worth the research project. Take this car, take two engineers, go play in the garage. So they took our system, put like three of these chips together to, f to handle eight cameras around the car and a bunch of hardware and a bunch of cameras and basically they made an Audi that goes from Har Chodzim to the Dead Sea hands-free, going through neighborhoods, stopping at lights, going around people, going around parked cars, the works. Now what year was this? This was like in 2000. 10, if I'm not mistaken. Which is surprising because you're hearing now, this year, right. a lot about right. autonomous vehicles as of if course. it's like the right. new thing that's happening. Right, right. No, no. It's been, it's been for a long time. We've been working on it. Other people have been working on it. I mean, Google has been working on it for a while. Google, you have Tesla, you have right. Elon Musk's well, all right. this. Right. So, but, okay, but Tesla basically came in on our coattails, but that's, I'll tell you that. Okay, so okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so basically, we made this autonomous vehicle, and so that's nice, but it's a, it's a research project. Okay, and so nobody's buying it, but now there's all these car companies that are coming to us for the ATIS stuff, and they're like, what's that? So all of a sudden, Tesla wants it, and Volvo wants it, and Nissan, and BMW, and just about everybody except for Toyota. We've always had this love-hate relationship with Toyota. They well, gave they us money, right? But then they said, look, you know, we're Japanese, we work with the Japanese, and you know, so they went to NEC. And you can't blame them, right? Even us, the Jewish people, I think all people have this thing about you work with your people. 
right? You know, we have, we have rules about tzedakah. You give to your family, you give to your neighborhood, you give to your city until you get out there. And by the way, Israel does get out there. As a nation, we're helping the whole world. But we first start at home. So that's not the problem. The problem is, is that when you take this on a business level, on an economic level, so I have a friend who's a PhD in economics from Harvard, and he explained to me, he said, listen, you know, you want your exports and imports to be equalized. I said, why? Well, let's just make everything for ourselves and sell to everybody else, and that's great, right? He said, no, that's not great. He said, you want to be good at what you're good at and focus on what you're good at. And, there, and there's, you're good at certain things and other people are good at other things. And we're in a global village where we should be encouraging people who are good at things. If you're buying pencils from a kibbutz for $5 a pencil when you can buy them from Malaysia for five cents, you're not helping anybody because you're just encouraging shoddy labor at an expensive price and at some point they're gonna go under. You're not gonna be able to prop these people up. You should be getting them to focus on what they're good at. And so everybody should focus on what they're good at. And I think that was the mistake that Toyota made. They went to NEC and NEC is good at making chips and they're good at making processors. But they said, oh, what do you need? We need this super duper fast uh, image processor. Okay, fine, we'll give you a processor. But they basically gave them this general processor. When they plugged it in, it burned up. Why did it burn up? Because they didn't know that they need this chip to work sitting on the front windshield in a car in Arizona in the summertime with no fan, okay? And with a general processor, basically what happens is you're using all kinds of general commands and you're trying to do them really fast. Whereas what we did is we know that we're designing for image processing. We know we are making a single camera that identifies 3D objects and 3D space. And so we don't have a general processor here. We took, like I said, those algorithms and we built specific hardware that knows that I'm taking images and I'm doing the special kinds of commands that I need to do. And I'm doing them in a completely efficient way that's for that purpose. And that's one of the things that made Mobileye very unique is that even when we were a small company, when we were 20 people, 100 people, it didn't matter, we were always the largest group of engineers working on this one problem. Okay, we had algorithms guys, software guys, and hardware guys all working under the same roof, all working for one, to solve one problem. There wasn't anybody else like that. And that's one of the reasons that Intel bought us. Basically, there's hardware companies, you know, NVIDIA, NEC, TI, all kinds of companies that make processors. There's like algorithms groups, uh, Intel before us, they bought some little Russian algorithm group that they, they know how to do this kind of uh, object identification, but they don't know how to implement it. And there's software people, and uh, only Mobileye had all of these components working together for 16 years. So beside the fact that we had all of this, these people working together, aside the fact that we're doing it all together, you know, making one chip for it, we're also, we have all the testing of 16 years. Millions and millions of miles from all around the world in snow, in rain, in light, in, in, in bridges, whatever, right? So all of these things coming together made us an attractive um, purchase for Intel. But still, you have to ask yourself, why would Intel come here and buy one chip for $15.3 billion when they know how to make chips. Right. They're one of the largest chip manufacturers in the world. And they bought us for an exorbitant price, $15.3 billion, okay, it's a lot of money, but maybe it's a, a fair price. That $15.3 billion translates to a price per earnings of 130. They paid 130 times the value of this company. Do you know that Intel today has a PE of around 20? The average PE for the S&P 500 over history is a PE of 16, 
right? 130 is insane. That means that they really value this company. Right. And so the question is why, right? So it's a confluence of a lot of things. It's also what I told you about this company. It's also about timing. Two years before they bought us approximately, we had a, a partnership that was announced between BMW, Intel, and Mobileye. And we announced that we we're going to bring the first commercially available autonomous vehicle by 2021. All right? So now, Intel, we're of course very happy. We're supplying the brains of this whole system. But Intel's not happy because Intel says, look, who are the players here? BMW is supplying the metal and the rubber. Fine. We can't do anything about that. We we're in charge of all the electronics. We're in charge of the wiring, we're in charge of the board, we're in charge of all the chips on the board. If they look at this, this system, it's all Intel except for one chip. Why are these people here? They wanted us out there. The, they were our biggest fear, that they are, and they're a significant competition. But basically what Brian Krasan, CEO at the time of the purchase, came to Israel and he said, look, we watched you for many months, and we realized that you know, you are way ahead of the game. And so they bought us because they don't want to miss this market. They bought us because autonomous vehicles is, and I quote one of the articles I read recently, is the most disruptive technology to hit humanity. Why? This is going to change everything. Why? Good question. Okay, so the first, the simplest answer is accidents. Okay, the World Health Organization today puts the number at one point. Two, five million people a year die in car accidents. That's 3,400 people a day. 3,400 people a day die wow. in the world in car accidents. That number is going to go to, it's going to go close to zero. I don't want to say, you know, zero, but it's got, there will obviously there's there's always be, free, right, there's always freak stuff. Okay, fine. But we're not, the 3,400, we're talking orders of magnitude that this is going to eliminate. Now, if you're going to eliminate car accidents, okay, you're going to eliminate traffic. You're going to eliminate car parts. You know, there's a car parts industry. Just replacing parts is a $1.3 trillion industry. That's going to zero. The insurance, car insurance. Well, not to zero, zero. they're going to have broken, you know. Yeah, uh, well, Pretty much zero. Things break, things replace, right? Uh, okay, I'm talking about the body parts. Body parts, okay. Yeah. So um, there's there's a guy named Tony Seba that's making some predictions about what how autonomous, ve autonomous vehicles will change the world. He predicts that by 2035, when everything is autonomous, there will be a reduction in the number of cars by 80%, 80% less cars in the world. Because there's gonna be all these pods. You're gonna get taxi, it's just gonna be a pod. It's not gonna be worth it for you to own a car, for sure in cities like New York, LA, Jerusalem, whatever. It's not gonna be worth it to have a car. You'll just get in these pods. They're gonna be incredibly cheap. Do you understand that a taxi in New York costs about 250 something a mile? Right. 150 something is the driver, yep. okay? So that's all of this is going to change. The number of cars, the, the accidents, the, then there's, the real estate's going to change. Do you realize that you don't need parking lots? You'll have these, the, all these autonomous vehicles will park in some kind of out-of-the-city graveyard that'll wake up in the morning and come and take people to work and take the people to, to school and go back and forth. And all these parking lots and buildings in New York City are going to become apartments and offices and libraries. And in LA, where all the parking lots are these huge, vast parking lots, they'll become parks and pools and tracks and I don't know what. But they're not going to be wasted on car space, okay? 
Lots of things are going to change. You're going to have the environmental impact. Yeah, you're going to have trucks that are going to do deliveries, transportation, New York, LA. Sorry that I'm giving all, always yeah, these examples, yeah. but you know, you have to. You don't have to have a driver that eats eight hours, sleeps eight hours, drives right. eight hours, right? There's going to be a truck. All he needs to do is stop to refuel. Do you know that McDonald's is so worried about this? I saw sketches. They're worried that seventy percent of McDonald's businesses drive-through. They're about to lose that. So now they've. I saw sketches of McDonald's with charge stations. They believe that there's going to be electric vehicles and so you're gonna get a charge at a McDonald's while, and while you're getting your yeah. burger but that's it you're gonna have trucks that are gonna drive not 70 80 90 100 you'll have trucks drive 250 250 miles an hour whatever it is they see everything the reason we have speed limits is because we have lousy reaction times and we don't know what's going on these have cameras these have radars these have GPS they see everything they know everything they're gonna freight train trucks bumper to bumper 250 miles an hour across the country that's going to reduce the cost of goods everywhere wow. there's a lot a lot of amazing changes disabled drivers people little kids old people disabled blind they can all go wherever they want they're all mobile now now in, in this vision are there are there people in the cars meaning can you send a truck without a driver without a Personally, you always need a chaperone to make sure things don't malfunction. I guess that's a, look, it's an interesting social question. And yeah, I suppose that you might have somebody as a chaperone, as you call it. But I mean, you know, the, these pods that are driving around, no. You know, like I'll call up a pod, I want to go to work now. So, you know, I'll get in and I'll sit and, you know, have my coffee. They did a survey, what are you going to do in your autonomous vehicle? So lots of people, when you ask them now, they say, oh, you know, people will be so much more productive. But the survey said, oh, I'm going to eat. I'm going to watch TV. I mean, look, go on a train. People aren't right. working. People are Except me. You're asking the wrong thing. Don't ask the wrong thing. I don't say you'll get more done. But, you know, that, that remains to be seen. But right. in any case, I mean, autonomous vehicles are going to change the world for the better. It, without a doubt. And the, also, I just wanted to mention that, by the way, so you mentioned that, you know, now we've been working on this for so long, right. and now it seems like, I mean, my kids have been asking me, am I ever going to get a driver's license? I mean, this has been so uh, real in our house for decades. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, but it is true that I've been reading, I feel like this year, a lot more yeah. about this. So is there something that's, if you guys have had this technology since 2010 or yeah. so, what's different now? Is it just me that I'm noticing more, or is there actually an uptick? Uh, in, in things going on and are there more people hopping on board and is it more actionable right now? Like what's it's the all current of the, state It's of all the of the above, it's okay. all of the above. Because look, when we first started, so we made an autonomous vehicle but it wasn't, it wasn't the smooth ride that it is today. We basically have now introduced uh, machine learning, and and I remember when the CEO first, you know, he's been driving his car autonomously to work every day for at least uh, since 2011. Really? He actually has an autonomous car? Yeah, absolutely. And they drive from Mevaseret to Har is that Is that permitted? From a legal perspective? Um, today they have permission. I don't know in the originally how much there was permit, how much people really knew what was going on. And they are sitting at the wheel and the car is driving and you're, oh. you're, you're basically, you know, you take control. And he explained that when he, when it used to drive him to work before machine learning, he had his hands like around the wheel that it was very jerky and like he would have to take over at any second. He was worried. But once machine learning came in, it smoothed the ride out. And you can see there was a, there was a great interview with somebody who took a ride in our car like a, a couple weeks ago from, I think it was TechCrunch or C, uh, CNET, I think it was CNET. Uh, and so anyway, 
he was explaining how the car really felt like a human driving it and that it had like this assertiveness like that we took them on the ride here from the um, from the Begin Highway and you have to get off the highway and then get on and no one's letting you on and right. you, know, you have to you, you, you know the one of the biggest fears of this of the autonomous vehicles are going to be so safe they'll just sit there and create massive traffic jams because they can't like go into traffic right. and he showed that the car attempted to get in and, a, and another car went faster so it slowed down and then it r sped up to get to align into the into the lane to merge into the traffic assertively and so all of that is actually due to the machine learning and then the other thing which is important to emphasize is that um, there's going to be what's called a supervisor for safety cases like let's say that it says I think this car is going to crash and you need to slam on your brakes so that's not going to be done just by machine learning. There's going to be actual code. There's going to be hard-coded safety cases, which will then say, okay, the trajectory has been programmed by the machine learning, but now let's compare. Does the supervisor, the safety supervisor say um, that's we agree or don't agree with what's about to be done? Right. Obviously, human error and human fallibility is, is a huge contributing factor to accidents now. Isn't there a fear of malfunctioning? Of absolutely, you know, which, I mean, for sure. Try using the internet okay. now, you know. Okay. So you, I, I, I will tell you, right? I will tell you um, things that can go wrong that you could have never even imagined. Okay, you're thinking, right? you're thinking, okay, like what happens if a little girl runs into the middle of the street and now the computer overheated or something like right. that, right? Okay, so for that stuff, that's simple. I mean, airplanes have been using uh, backup systems and triple backups, and what you call majority rules. Like we'll have, we'll have two of these chips running in parallel uh -huh. and you have another computer that says that they both say break or only one of them so if one, if we don't get if we don't get that both of them agree so now we know that this we, something's gone wrong and so now really what you can have there's a couple ways to do this one of them is that you have a third processor that's like a backup processor that knows just enough to park the car said so we're in trouble we're parking you can also have three full processors and you can play majority rule it's more expensive but right. you just say I'm continuing to drive, I'll just do whatever the majority says, right? And so that's another possible way to get over this backup system. But, you're, but the car is gonna be backed up by many more things. Right now, today, we're based on 100% camera-based system. Yep. Uh, we'll go and take a look at the cars, but basically there's eight cameras around the car that help it to drive, there's four cameras that help it to, to parallel park or, or autonomously park, and it's all camera-based. But we're also, we also have um, dynamic mapping, which the dynamic mapping is basically people are driving, uploading scenes of what they're driving through, and then that's getting fed down as a new, renewed map. And that's also what separates us from Google, which they're working on fixed maps. So they basically have had to have mapped out where they are, and then they can drive there. Otherwise, they can't. We are constantly mapping wherever we are, and you know, if there's a if there's a work now being done in the road, we know about it immediately. It's all being uploaded to the cloud. So that's like sort of another backup in terms of our trajectory and where we know we are and what we're doing. But there's going to be other backups. There's going to be um, radar is going to get into it. First of all, radar is much cheaper than it was uh, 15 years ago. Also, there's going to be lidar. Lidar is basically 360 degree imaging, and that's that's what Google's based on. You see these giant right. spinning thing on the yes. top of their car? So that costs in the hundreds of thousands of dollars today. It's not commercially viable, and that's another thing that's held up Google for a long time. They're 100% LiDAR-based and fixed map-based, okay? We don't need that. We're waiting, and there are companies in Israel today, there's a company where some guys from Mobileye went that they're making LiDAR cheap. It's a company called Innoviz, and they're trying to make LiDAR under 100 bucks, under 10 bucks, I don't know. They're, you know, 
commercially reasonable, let's say. Right. So once that happens, so you're going to have at least three sensors plus dynamic mapping. All of those things are going to be going on at the same time. And um, I mean, like, not to put the fear factor in you, but the, the, the other thing that people are concerned about with chips is there's things called alpha particles. Alpha particles are these little particles in the air that they can drop on a transistor and change its state. So now you have 100% working hardware, you've tested everything 100%, but now this alpha particle just comes in and flips a bit. Shorts it or something. Yeah, it just turns, it turns a zero to a one. Now what if that zero was your brake wire? And now this alpha particle just said brake in the middle of the street while you're going 100 miles an hour. So first of all, we don't do anything with one bit. And the, right. and the, break, the, break, the break command, for example, is like your visa number and it has a whole correcting code on it and there's all kinds of backup systems. I mean, there's a million things that are going on. There's a whole, you know, I was also involved in, in, in the safety aspects of the system and, and, and designing on top of that actual functional design, there's this functional safety that's a layer on top of it. To make sure things like, like alpha patient. particles, yeah, that things like alpha particles do not affect us, and there's constant redundancy and checking, and so there's a lot, a lot of things that are being done to make sure. <laughs> Sounds pretty comprehensive. Yeah, yeah. Pretty yeah. amazing. When is this actually uh, coming to a to a theater near you? Yeah. Okay. So, so like I said, um, BMW, Mobileye, and Intel have have projected for 2021 to have something significant on the street. Um, Meaning a, a product that is affordable to the average consumer or probably high end? not yeah probably high you know high end for sure high end um, and then you know like I said this guy Tony Siba who's as good a guess as anyone says that it's going to be it's going to be ubiquitous by 2035 um, and then there will be stages there will be levels you know until everybody gets there um, but at some but at some point let's take 2035 you're not going to be allowed to drive they will not allow people to drive well wow. right because people kill people 3400 a day Right? So then people come to me and they say, no, but I, I like to drive. I drive, drive. Right? <laughs> right? So I said, so look, you know, there's going to be like these go-kart trucks. <laughs> you go, no, you'll go, you'll rent a Lamborghini and have a nice time. Okay? But they're not going to let you on the street. Wow. Unbelievable. So in, in starting to move towards wrapping up, Luis, I, I'm, I'm so curious, you know, Intel bought you guys out. What year was it? Um, last year. It was just that. Okay, yeah. so since then, I, I guess you got your options, thank yeah. God. And, yeah. you know, I, I hope life's uh, improved on that front since right. the days of uh, being on the street. Um, so what are you doing now? Have you, have you kind of, are you moved into a more passive phase employment-wise? Yeah. Uh, I mean, basically what I've done is what I've always wanted to do. You know, I'm also actually known as the rabbi of Mobileye. Okay. Since we started... Mobileye here, rabbi. I like yeah, that. since I, I mean, first of all, while I was here for 16 years, I went for seven years to Merkaza Rav Yeshiva two nights a week, and I got my smicha de Rabbanut. Well, I passed the test at the Rabbanut. Um, I passed the test of uh, Rav Zalman Nechemia Goldberg. Sure. So, yeah, I know that uh, you don't eat milk and meat anymore. And, uh, <laughs> and, um, and don't kill people with cars. Right, oh. right. And then, and, and so basically, but I always, I, I always believed that, that learning Torah and teaching Torah was, was like my passion. And so, you know, I say I'm an engineer by profession and a rabbi by passion. And so at Mobileye, when we started in that house, so we sat and we used to eat lunch together, 10 guys. Every day we eat lunch, and I saw that there are people they don't know anything. So I took them once a week. We went down to the basement, and we had lunch together. And we and I taught basic Judaism, and I taught guys for 16 years until that class 
mushroomed and now there's like you know 25 people religious not religious and we have a weekly shiur and um, and then I do all kinds of other things you know answer Allah questions for the company for people and give the the toast on the holidays you know it's the CEO speaks and I speak and so basically I've always been you know focused on this aspect and so now the options have basically been given me the time to do that on a more full-time basis I'm I'm teaching a, a weekly Torah Umada class at the JCT which is the Jews from College of Technology uh, uh, yeah it's called Mahon Lev also yeah and then and um, I'm getting my PhD in Jewish philosophy from Bar Ilan why not yeah <laughs> and, um, and and I'm also working with startups I'm actually advising a few startups you you're on boards and yeah, stuff like that yeah are you so are you working here at a day-to-day capacity anymore no 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 really I'm, not yeah yeah I mean basically yeah. I come in and out and as me how many of the kind of the original group you know those who had the options and yeah. those who could now afford to leave how yeah. many of them because it sounded like the unknown or the, the yeah. founder actually still the CEO right right so he didn't cash out or he cashed right. out but he's not right 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 now he, he I mean, yeah, he's basically yeah yeah he basically stayed in um, I mean uh, from the original group look the people how many people actually even lasted for 16 so years right I mean you can count them on two hands I mean basically like 10 people from the house till here you know it's a it's a handful of people of those people so maybe one hand of them also left just um, kind of retiring right relaxing, right they're doing other things doing other things yeah. so you're obviously not relaxing you're, yeah. you're quasi I, I think I have I'm, I'm more pressure under more pressure than I ever was but yeah. you're up to date on what's going on in the company yeah. or do you yeah. are you in ever on conference calls or briefings or um, no I mean I stay basically I stay in touch with the people that I've worked with you know I, I talk to them about what the latest advancements have been in the chip you know when I left so we were we had finished IQ4 the fourth generation of the chip and we were designing IQ5 now they're designing IQ6 and I was just talking with one of the guys like what are the changes you know now instead of the the cores there's some certain cores that were were from MIPS now they're they're from Intel and, and all kinds of different things and do they and still pick your brain about these things or it's more kind of like just kind of letting you know what's going on. Uh, most, it's mostly letting me know what's going on. Sometimes I get a call here and there about right. you know, what. Mm-hmm. Have you gotten involved in any other hobbies or charities or things uh, like that? I mean, no, the, like I said, I mean, my I've always seen my purpose is to lilmod ulilamed to learn and to teach, and that's what I've basically been trying to do. Um, like I said, I'm learning um, at Bar Ilan. I'm teaching one of the places at JCT. I also teach at a, at this. Uh, I have a Vatikim Shiur in in uh, Efrat. Um, which also gives me a whole new perspective on life, meeting people that are 80 and 90, and they have interesting takes on my shirim. Um, I've, I've been teaching, I've basically been giving these kinds of lectures, telling the mobilizer, I've been giving like, you know, entrepreneurial workshops, you might say, tell the story of my story, the mobilized story, try to give people, uh, you know, an angle on, on this kind, on innovation. And what I call purpose, you know, there's this book, The Startup Nation, sure. it goes through why is Israel known as a startup nation? They come up with all kinds of interesting well, ideas, you know, kids learn responsibility to the army, army. army. it's a small country so you get a ride with the CEO when you're hitchhiking, things like that. Right. But I think that the key is really in the middle here. It says as follows, with all of its problems, Israel has one commanding advantage, a sense of purpose. Mm. That's what it's about. That's really at the core of my story. That's at the core of Mobilize story. That's the core of the startup nation. I think it's at the core of the Jewish nation. We have survived 2,000 years of persecution, of diaspora, and we have come home. And we've come home, and not only have we come home, we've come home and we are so successful. 
that there are groups of investors from the entire world that are just begging to put their money here. John Medved, who's the head of um, our crowd, yes. so he I'm said tr- that trying to get him for the podcast. So, so, so when, <laughs> so when, when he, he, he's, he's was quoted in, in, uh, in the news as saying that when the Mobileye buyout hit the news, he said, quote unquote, all hell has broken loose. He said, my phone has not stopped ringing from every country that you can imagine, from China, Japan, from Australia, from Europe, from America. And they're all saying the same thing. We want a piece of this. Everybody wants a piece of Israel. Do you know that when the CEO had the press conference and he announced that he bought Mobileye, he said, you know, I want you to know that Intel is just as much an Israeli company as we are an American company. You have to ask yourself why. Why would you say that? Why would the largest chip manufacturer in the world identify themselves with Israel. You know, in Mobileye was set up in 1999, 2000 as a Netherlands company. We're not an Israeli company. It's not good for business. But today, things have changed. Today, people realize that there's a value, that the Jewish people are bringing value to the world, and they're coming to learn from us. I believe that they're coming to learn from us for tech, come to learn from us about morality. We are the people of the book. We are the people of purpose. We are here to say there is a purpose. You have a soul. You're here to fix yourself. You're here to fix the world. Beautiful. Oh, very inspiring note to end on and uh, an incredible story. Fascinating both personally and technologically, uh, sociologically, uh, (laughs) on so many different levels. I I look forward to, uh, to the day when you can relax and, and be on my laptop <laughs> while I'm getting uh, ferried around to work or elsewhere. And, uh, thank you very much, okay, Maurice Navon, for joining us. My pleasure. This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at JewsYouShouldKnow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at JewsYouShouldKnow. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash JewsYouShouldKnow. Finally, If you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews you should know.